officially live. Hello, everyone. Uh, Devo here with Carolina Real, and my co-host Lisa Staff is on the other line with us. We have in the studio today, actually for the first time, really excited to kind of announce we're at the uh, Huga Studios for the dedicated podcast, and we'll get some video on this later because our video system is not working right now for some reason. But we are here with Jorge Millares, and he is going to talk us through a little bit of what's going on in his life. He is running for Charlotte City Council. He is the first ever Hispanic that is running for Charlotte City Council or a part of any governing body in Charlotte. Is that correct? Uh, I would be the first elected, yes. There's been a few that have ran, but... Mm -hmm. Okay, so the first elected. So we'll get to the City Council piece in a moment, but I just kind of wanted to introduce you a little bit and how I came to know Jorge. Um, Funny story, I met you now. This is going on our second or third year now? I think about two and a half years. Two and a half years. Uh, Jorge also runs Queen City Unity, which is a fantastic organization here in Charlotte that is dedicated to... The proliferation of unity across races, across genders, across sexualities, et cetera. And um, I met him because I I found him on Instagram, of all places, of course. <laughs> that seems to be the, the trend these days. Yep. And was their, their message really resonated with me. So I came down to one of your inaugural events, and I was inducted as an ambassador. I forget what my title is. I'm kind of all over no, the place. No, that's it. You nailed it. <laughs> um, so that's how I met him. And the funny thing is, and you'll remember this, the night I met him, I said, "Man, you should get involved in politics. You've got a, you have a political aura about you. Remember that? Yeah, you're a prophet. Uh, and and <laughs> yeah, and you kind of shrugged it off, like, nah, whatever. I'm kind of doing this thing. But here we are today. So, if you don't mind, just kind of talk us through. You came to Charlotte from Miami. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a Cuban immigrant, and you're first generation. Is that yep, right? First generation. And so, what brought you to Charlotte? And how did you kind of get into the space where we are today? Just kind of fast track us, Queen City Unity." Three years later, you're running for city council, et cetera. Yeah, so I, I grew up in Miami, like you said. From I'm a son of immigrant parents, grew up in a really low-income neighborhood, um, and ultimately at the age of 22 opened up my business and found some financial success, uh, but ultimately realized that that's not, that's not the, 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 the measure of success for me, um, financial success, right? It's not. And I came to Charlotte because I was – asked by the company I was working for at the time to move, so they gave me a very sweet deal to move up to Charlotte, and I did some research, and I had visited Charlotte a couple times, so this was almost 10 years ago, and I just fell in love with the city, the people, the history, the culture, and especially 10 years ago, the potential for growth, right? Along the way, when we had the officer-involved shooting of Keith Lamont Scott, a good friend of mine, Jamal, which you know, uh, Jamal and I got together and started Queen City Unity along with five other people on a couch. And it just blew up. And, and people, like just like you said, right? You saw it on Instagram. The message resonated with you. That happened to so many people. We have over 150 volunteers. Ultimately, it gets to the point where I'm, 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 I'm in the private sector as a director of business development. And I'm also the uh, you know, executive director and founder of this organization. And my heart just called to leave the private sector and invest all my time into Queen City Unity. And it's been an amazing ride. Uh, and, and along the way, made a lot of great friendships, ultimately leading to the decision to run, uh, which was about eight months ago. I started getting phone calls from people saying, Jorge, you should run for city council. And, and then they started telling me, well, we've never had Latin American representation. And these calls came from the Latin American community. Ultimately, some of the calls also started coming from people I've built relationships in the African-American community, the Indian community, and ultimately from other city council members and county commissioners saying, hey, We'd love to serve with you. So here we are. So, you know, there's a lot of stories around politicians who have been involved in politics, 
in the public mm -hmm. sector, and then afterwards they went from private to public and then immediately back to private. And I've, a lot of them have talked about how they've had more of an impact in the private sector as opposed to being as a politician. So what's your take on that? Do you think you'll be able to make more of a difference in the community in Charlotte as a politician in the public sector? Or is something – why private versus public? How did you get to this space and why? Yeah, 100%. You know, and I think everybody is – you know, they're what they're gifted with, right, what they're born with. It's different for all of us. That's like some people say, well, I'd rather play football than basketball. I'd rather play basketball than football. For me, I choose this arena because through Queen City Unity, what I realized is that we have done a great job, right, along with our 150-plus volunteers to serve people affected by inequities. But there's a lot of policies, and there aren't enough policies to help people that are affected and prevent the inequities from happening to begin with. So the reason why I know that I would be most effective in this particular arena is because I bring a sense, and, and you hope you've witnessed this, Devo, is of, of collaborative and participatory leadership that right now we lack that on the city council. I mean, there are some great city council members that bring that to the table, but we need more. And I hope to bring that so that way we can collaborate together. Because right now, I mean, we can talk about affordable housing, economic mobility, all of the above. But if we don't have the 11 council members that work together towards finding these solutions and communicate with one another, we're not going to solve any of them. So that all sounds like fantastic rhetoric, but how are you going to bridge that gap? So you've got, of the 11, how many of those are Republican? How many of those are Democrat? And are, do you come in as a minority? No pun intended. <laughs> do you come in as a minority in terms of your space? Are you you're representing the Democratic side? Is that correct? correct? Yeah. Okay, so... I believe in nonpartisan politics, firm mm -hmm. believer of it. I don't believe that there should be two sides. What's your take on that, and how do you think you're going to bridge that gap? Yeah, so right now, as it stands today, the council are – there's 11. Nine of them are Democrats. So it's And this city has predominantly been, you know, just a Democratic city. Now, you can't say the same for the state. The state is very different. But as far as the city, that's the interesting part is that there's so many decisions that have been made with – you know, to the dismay of some Democrats, with nine Democrats – um, and so that is – that goes to show you that there's definitely some breakage in communication. And what it really boils down to is everything you have seen me do is let's sit down at the table. Let's communicate with one another, and let's have real conversations. And understanding that all my ideas, those aren't necessarily the ideas. But if my ideas can spark great ideas among a group, then to me what we come away with as a group, that's what's going to really dictate progress. So, you know, I – it, it, it really just boils down to communication and, and people understanding each other. I can't say the council will remain nine Democrats and two Republicans. We don't know. So it truly depends. To answer your question, it depends on who the group is, Devo. The dynamics would change. But that's why the election is so important, because the voters will decide who are those 11 people. And I, I can't do it alone. You know, It's going to have to take a remarkable group of 10 other people. So you're running up against how many um, potential candidates right so now? So there's six other candidates, so a total of seven of us for four at-large seats. Four at-large seats. Okay. So if anybody can rally this together, so I, you know, I've, I've watched you over the last three years kind of do what you've done with Queen City. When I joined, I think there was nine or ten people that were involved in the ambassador group. You just mentioned it's over 100 now. So it's really quite fantastic. What happens to Queen City Unity after this? So you get elected, which I'm assuming you will. I'm going to put that vibe out there for you now. Appreciate that. Who runs Queen City Unity? Do you still stay involved with it, or is it just kind of a, a rule by committee? How does that play out? Yeah, I mean, just like any other nonprofit. So we have our board of directors, and then at the moment, I am the one staff, right? Um, and everything else is, is volunteer-led. 
I would remain with Queen City Unity. Uh, that's to me my heart and soul. It's it's something we've worked hard to build. And yes, uh, you know the the city council job, as so to speak, it's it's actually considered a part time job. Are there perks? Do you get paid to be a city council? There's a very very small salary of I believe about nineteen thousand uh-huh. dollars. Uh, because it's a part-time job. You, yeah. you don't have an armed escort car and personally Armed escort? Out. No. <laughs> Not at city council, man. <laughs> what does a city council member do? Yeah. So, and what real impact can you have on the community? What? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, what the city council does today, and I'll tell you what I'd like to see the city council do. So those are two separate things. But the city council handles zoning, right? So what, what we can build on particular pieces of land here in the city. Uh, they handle the CMPD, so the police department, the airport, um, and and they handle uh, economic development services as well. So that's uh, predominantly what you'll hear a majority of the things that the council does. What city councils in other cities have done a little better than we have uh, is serve some people in the city. So there's a newly created office that's called the Office of Equity, Mobility, and Immigrant Integration. And I firmly believe that this newly created office can tackle our economic mobility issues. You know, obviously, for those that don't know, I mean, most people know at this point, but Charlotte's dead last when it comes to economic mobility, meaning if you're born poor, the likelihood of you dying poor is higher than any other major city in the United States. We need to take the lead role as a city to solve that. And by doing so is, you know, becoming this, this office, in my opinion, needs to be properly staffed. It's staffed by, I think, one or two people at the moment. We need to ramp that up and truly tie people to existing resources such as skills assessments, financial literacy courses, career development. And let's let's not give men fish, give men and women fish, but let's teach them how to fish. So that's what the city doesn't necessarily do at the moment, but I'm hopeful that we can. So you have specific programs in mind to bring into play? Absolutely, yes. And, and part of that, too, also involves integrating our immigrant community and, and providing them services upon arrival here in the, in the United States and Charlotte. Hey, Lisa, I've been asking a bunch of questions here. Sorry to, to hog the mic. Are you still around? Yeah, but you asked me to mute myself, so I'm, I'm doing what I should do as a woman. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> Did you have anything you wanted to uh, jump in on? No, there? no. It's, it's all amazing and um, quite educational what you're doing. I, I'm not sure what you're going to do with $19,000 a year for yeah. a part-time job, but... Might need to do some budgeting with that. Yeah, yeah. It uh, <laughs> it's definitely like they say, uh, a, a work of labor, right? Like labor of love, actually. Um, you know, it's absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and, and and one thing that I didn't mention that this, you know, I believe that particular office can also do is, the city does a good job helping people that want to launch a business, and there's some courses and some resources that they offer, right? On on here's how you launch a business, here's how you do business with our city. But what we need to focus on, too, is how do we how do we help those entrepreneurs maintain those businesses? Because most businesses will go out of business within the first couple of years. I can think of something with those $19,000 of yours you can do towards my business. Yeah. Well, if you want to donate <laughs> that money, that, that funding. I'm going to feed the kids first, and if whatever's left over, Devo, is all yours. You're gonna, <laughs> our own studio for podcasts. Uh, that would be sweet. But yeah, I think it's helping small businesses and, and helping small businesses become mid-sized businesses and mid-sized businesses become large-sized businesses. And how do we get those large businesses to become Fortune 500 companies that are based right here out of Charlotte? 
So all of that sounds fantastic. I think that's great for the development of Charlotte. It, it's we've, We roughly came to Charlotte about the same time. I think I'm three years earlier than you. When I first moved here, it was a ghost town, at mm -hmm. least for me, coming from large, multi-million uh, San Diego population. And the, it's, it's literally a different city 10 years later, 13 oh, yeah. years later in my case. So I posted something on Instagram the other day. I know you saw it because you commented on it. Um, one, of the, one of the demographics that I've seen that's had the biggest impact here in Charlotte, besides for the fact that it's a very, still a very segregated community, um, is the homeless population. Mm -hmm. And I think anyone who is half awake and half aware can realize that there is a significant increase in homeless people in Charlotte. And some of these people, because I work in the shelters and do volunteer work down there, these are working citizens who actually have paying jobs but were forced out of their low-income housing or their their low-income housing was torn down to make room for another skyscraper or another condominium complex, and they just don't have anywhere to go. And uh, I was interacting with a gentleman a couple of day nights ago in downtown Charlotte who actually works two jobs. He works a nine-to-five, um, and then he gets off work and goes and works at McDonald's. He has three kids who don't even live with him because he can't afford housing, so they've been sent away to live with his sister who lives somewhere in, like, Wisconsin or something, and he sends money home whenever he can. So... What can be done about that? What are your thoughts around that? How do you curb that? How do you get people more involved in the community to help that? Because the city's only growing. It's the fastest growing city in America, or at least number two behind Raleigh, I think. And every time you drive downtown, you see a new building going up, a new condo complex going up, and that's just forcing more people out onto the fringes of the community. How do we combat something like that? Because that's something yeah. near and dear to my heart, and I obviously know it is yeah. yours. I mean, there's a lot of, first of all, I'll start by saying there's a lot of vacant buildings here in Charlotte. And that every night there's people sleeping on the streets, but there's these vacant buildings that could be utilized to at least provide shelter for the evening, right? So that's one thing. But one way that the city, this all ties in, the reason, you know, why we're seeing a higher level uh, and more, you know, folks, you know, uh, on the streets and, and that are living homeless is when you have gentrification, when you have uh, affordable housing issues, and when you have economic mobility issues like we do, that's a recipe for disaster. The equivalent is homelessness, right? Like you said, you've got working folks that are living on the streets and will sleep in a bus or even in a car if they're lucky that night, right? So the way that we can help is through these economic mobility programs that I'm talking about, where we start teaching people not necessarily how to have a job, but how do we find how do we help them find long-term careers? Like one that really comes to mind is solar panel technicians. These folks make over forty-eight thousand dollars a year, and it only takes a couple of months of an apprenticeship. For you, to, for you to actually do this. So the gentleman that's working at McDonald's and doing the other job, he would probably, I would assume he would make more as a solar panel technician than he would with those two jobs, right? But how do we tie people into those resources? And that's one thing. When it comes to the affordable housing thing, you know, right well, now. Well, let's stop there yeah. for a second. So let's go back to that. Let's address that. So mm -hmm. you talked about knee-jerk reaction and not giving people fish, but making them fishermen. So mm -hmm. how do you give someone in that capacity? How do you identify these people? How do you target those people? How do you utilize some of the building spaces, the vacant buildings that you just talked about? How do you get those in the hands of real cooperative efforts and collaboration efforts to actually do something about it? Yeah, I think it's a tie-in between the city, right, um, the nonprofit sector, and the mm -hmm. private sector. When you tie those three together, you have all the resources that you need, right? Because these buildings are potentially owned by the private sector, right, or, or businesses. You have the nonprofit groups that, that have the volunteers, like we at Queen City Unity. We would have the bandwidth to, to say, hey, let's, let's, let's put volunteers in these centers, in these vacant buildings. Um, so if the, if the buildings were loaned out to the city, 
the city could take the lead in conjunction with the nonprofit space. And, and I think that's a good start. So there's a boatload of uh, nonprofit organizations that survive here in Charlotte, greater Charlotte area that cater to the homeless needs. Mm -hmm. Is there some sort of a residency board that takes the leaders of each of these? And there's honestly, I know of 20 that I can rattle off the top of my head right now that yeah. do various causes for homeless people. Is there some sort of an administrative board that that could be pulled together, maybe it already exists, I just don't know of it, that could be pulled together where they could partner with the city council, with Charlotte community members, nonprofits, and the private sector to be involved in this process as opposed to working unilaterally by themselves? Yeah. And I'm sure there are groups, and I'm sure they stay connected, but I, I do believe that the city, so the city has boards and commissions, mm -hmm. right? I serve on one of them. I serve on the Community Relations Committee. And one of the things that I believe is an area of opportunity for the, for the city and, and the city council is working through those boards. You know, in, in those boards, you find representation of the community. And that's what they're supposed to be. These boards and commissions are supposed to represent people in the community. And they do. But unfortunately, we, we aren't being engaged as much. So anytime something happens or anytime they're looking for solutions – at what I've seen is, well, we're going to host these forums and we're going to have, well, you already have these boards and commissions. Yeah, there's a lot of talking. Right. A lot of talking going yeah. on. Yeah, we do. That's one thing we do great in Charlotte. We do, we do great talk. a talking. lot of talking. Yeah. So you get elected as a city council member, which you will. Um, is this part of something that's near and dear to your heart? This is an initiative that you would take on and, and bring to the table? Or is, it, mm -hmm. is that something that's kind of tier two for you? No, it's on my platform. And, and I have it you know, clearly you know, on the website as economic mobility and affordable housing being the biggest ones. Because to me, that's the cure for homelessness. Um, you know, our issues with it are also the reason for homelessness. But we got to, with affordable housing, you know, right now we have 13,000 people that are on a housing voucher waiting list. And this is a federally funded uh, program. And so it's not necessarily, some would argue, it's not within the city's purview. But I beg to differ because we have a housing trust fund that we're using to build new affordable housing units. And I commend that. I think that's great. But that won't take place. Those won't be done for a couple of years. Meanwhile, there will be people sleeping on the streets tonight, right? How do we use that housing trust fund to supplement what they're not getting from those housing vouchers and, and make up the difference? And at the same time, another issue is you have landlords that some of them will not take these vouchers. And here in the state of, South, of North Carolina – you don't have to, right? There's the, and, and, and you can't mandate that they do. So how do we incentivize some of these landlords to make sure that they're taking these vouchers? So it's a two-prong approach, right? And, and, and it's more than two prongs, really. Uh, but yes, that would be top of the list. For me, as somebody who, who grew up in a low-income neighborhood, yeah, that's, that's definitely at the top of my list. So you get elected. When's the election? So e, well, early voting starts it's from August 21st to September 6th. And then we, they take a few days off, and September 10th is the primary, and the general would be on November 5th. But the primary is what has dictated a lot here in the past. Do It's a two-year term, is that correct? Two years. Two-year mm -hmm. term. So it's two years, and then are you allowed, you're allowed successive terms, you can get reelected yeah. multiple times? Is Absolutely. there a gap in that at some point? Like you can't no. consecutively, no. there's no, in, okay. So correct. is two years enough time to get anything done? It depends on who you ask, and, and it depends how hard you work. Uh, I'd like to think that you can get a lot done in two years, but I wouldn't just want to run for two years. I, I think that this is a long-term initiative, personal initiative for me. So, yeah, some would argue, well, you can't get anything done in two years. I think that just depends on your learning curve and your work ethic. And I know when it comes to work ethic, it's hard to outwork me. <laughs> 
I can attest to that. So three things you mentioned earlier earlier that are hotbeds and, and topics for you. You talked about our city council, I'm sorry, uh, city council responsibilities and oversight were zoning, um, CMPD, which is the police department, economic development we've talked about. So I recently read, and I don't know where I saw this, that there's been a 20% hike or spike in violent crimes, rape, aggravated assault, um, et cetera, here in Charlotte. And, I, and I'm not really sure why there's that 20%. Can you speak to that and what is being done to, to reassess policies, to organize around that, to police against that? What, what, what's the reason for it in the first place, to your understanding? Yeah, it going back to what I call that two-prong or several-prong approach, it's hard to quantify why, but, but I'll paint this picture. And, and statistically, it's proven that when you have poverty, you have higher crimes. This is statistically proven. So it's interesting that we as Charlotteans are shocked, right? We're just absolutely just shocked and thinking, wow, how can the murder rate be so high? How can violent crimes be up? Well, I'll tell you why. We have an affordable housing crisis, and we are dead last in economic mobility. That's exactly why. So we got to treat not the symptoms, but the, but the actual cause. Isn't that a um, isn't that kind of an ironic situation? We're dead last in economic mobility, but yet we're the fastest growing city in America. Mm -hmm. Doesn't isn't there some sort of um, negation there involved? And, and how do you speak to that? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that because a lot of people that I talk about the economic mobility issues we have here will say, wait a minute. So then Charlotte is dead last. Like you guys are the most, you're the poorest city in America. No, 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 no. And if you drive around Charlotte, yeah. that's hard to tell because there is a shit ton of money here. Right. I was in Myers Park yeah. yesterday and I was looking at some of these houses and I'm like, what do these people do? <laughs> right. And and here's the thing is we are not the poorest city in America. We're a thriving economic you know, city. You know, banking capital, all of the above. I mean, we've got other banks moving in here now, right? The merger between BB&T and SunTrust. I mean, we are truly a financial capital here in the United States. The issue is that the delta between being, being living, you know, between the low-income families and the, the high-income families, the delta continues to grow higher and higher. So you'll continue to see wealth but you'll continue to see poverty. And what's happening is... Okay, that just matches the trend of the national policies Correct. as well. So that's yep. going across... That's actually going on across the globe. Right, exactly. So is that just a byproduct of, of growth of a city? Or is there actually something that can be done, but there's just nothing being done because that's how the world works? Mm. Yeah, I think it's... So it is nationwide, but I'd argue to say it's happening here more because of the history of our city and the history of segregation in our city. When you have, uh, you know, black and brown families, you know, Latino and African Americans and people of color that are just pushed to certain neighborhoods that don't have social capital and access to the folks that, that do, that's when you start seeing a divide. So, the, and, you know, and, and that's when you start seeing the violent crime. So I think there's a lot that could be done around treating the cause, not necessarily the symptoms. Now, in the meantime... You, we do have to actually, there's got to be some reform within the CMPD. And part of what I'm advocating for, and this is where we're at, the CMPD is understaffed. There are, uh, there are 1,700 officers. We should have 2,000 or more. We only have 1,700. Attrition is high. They, they have a lot of employees that, that, that are just quitting their jobs, and it's hard to recruit. Yeah, a police officer told me I was in Matthews recently, and he said that they were losing, the city was losing police, or maybe it's the other way around. Matthews was losing police officers to Charlotte because of the, there's a, a large pay gap in between the two. Yeah, and I would say it's probably the other way around, actually. And, and I don't know how he was saying it, but here's what, we, here's what I have seen. We are the 16th largest city in America. We pay our officers 
entry level, $44,000 a year. Um, the 15th largest city in the nation, so right above us, right, is Columbus, Ohio. They pay $57,000 a year, entry level. And then the 17th, right underneath us, uh, is Indian Indianapolis, Indiana, and they start at 51000 Well, we're right in between those cities, and we start at 44000 so if I'm an officer, I'm, I'm going to go be an officer in Hickory or somewhere else, make the same amount of money with less responsibility and a better shift. Of course I'm taking that. You know, so I think we need to reconsider how we're paying our officers. That'll help us train and recruit. But not only that, but then when you pay more, you can heighten the level of accountability, which right now we lack. And we're seeing it with our officer-involved shootings. Uh, and, and we're seeing it with, with the, you know, the type of people that we have. We need officers that can be in the community and get to know people and build relationships with the people that they that they serve. Because that's what policing is, it's serving people. I heard a story, I think it was about a year and a half ago when there was, when the shootings were so rampant. Um, I think it was right after, uh, what's his name, uh, Bradley Scott, what was his name? Uh, Keith Lamont Scott. Keith, Keith Lamont Scott, sorry, I'm horrible with names. That's all right. Um, that they had started a, a new beat program, officer beat program, where mm -hmm. they were actually physically walking the streets and I think they were testing it out in, I want to say West Charlotte. Yeah. Um, has that program been ended? Has it been resurrected? Is it going on? Because I know that uh, the report that I read, they were citing other cities across America mm -hmm. who had re fallen back to the beat cop concept because it's more, people get scared of police cars. Yeah. People are scared of police cars. I'm a non-violent <laughs> criminal white man <laughs> driving in Charlotte. And when I see a police car, I kind of like, okay, am I my seatbelt on? Yep. Am I driving at the right speed? Did I turn my, turn my blinker on? So, the idea behind it was is that cities, and I, you cited Indianapolis. I know I'm pretty sure Indianapolis is one of those cities. I believe Miami is going back to it. They were falling back to the beat cop concept because it was more interactive, yeah. not so pervasive, not so invasive, and more of a community collaborative concept of policing. Absolutely. So that was a long um, ramble there. But are, is Charlotte still doing that? Was it effective? Is it being distributed in other communities? And what are your thoughts yeah, around that? I haven't seen enough of it. And, and, and a lot of it has to do that when you're understaffed. If you're understaffed, then you can't, it, it makes it tough, right? When all you're getting is back-to-back -back calls. I was on the phone with a friend of mine that works with CMPD, and he, you know, he's trying to have conversations with me. He's like, hey, I, I got to go. I got to go. I got another call, another call. So you won't have time that for that. That sounds like me trying to get you on the phone. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, right? <laughs> but it's it, – no, and we need more of that, and that's why I would advocate for – paying officers more so we can retain and recruit more to have enough officers so they can hit the streets, walk those streets, get to know the people that they serve. Because I'll tell you a story. You know, I grew up in a, in a low-income neighborhood, and I'll never forget Officer Dominguez. Every time he pulled me over, or, or and I was just walking, um, chances are in the neighborhood I was living in, I may have not been up to great things, right, as, as, a, as a just rambunctious teenager. And I remember him talking to me and saying, you know, he would just talk to me and get to know me. And ultimately, it changed. And, and I, my behavior changed. And I'll never forget him. And there's more stories like that. And a good example is a gentleman here in Charlotte who's an officer. And I'll leave him unnamed, but if he's listening, you know who you are. Where he really has gotten to know his community in West Charlotte. And a lot of people come up to him and say, hey, you know, this guy's thinking about doing this to that person. And he'll go have conversations and say, hey, man. Dude, like, that ain't it. Like, you can't do that. You can go to jail. And he has prevented murders by having these conversations. But if we don't pay the officers enough, we can't retain them, we don't have enough of them, and then guess what? We can't hold them accountable because they'll just quit. And for me, that, you, can, you will get what you pay for. So by increasing pay, we can also increase the level of accountability, 
and I have a plan laid out that I'd like to obviously get the buy-in of my future fellow council members on how we raise that level of accountability and have two assessments annually for each of the officers. They, if, they, if they don't pass this assessment, and it's a full 360 assessment, not done on a computer, it's a tactical assessment, they don't pass the first one, they'll have 30 days to take it again. If they don't, they can't be on the streets. I like that idea. So it is all about accessibility, you're right, and, and it's all about community and accessibility, and that's one of the things that I've noticed um, since I've been in Charlotte is there's a lot of, I actually have a lot of police officer friends, and I don't know how I have police officer friends, I just randomly meet police officers, but I've noticed the ones that are more approachable and are engaging in conversations, and you see it, you walk downtown, you see police officers out doing their beat stuff, whether they're just on motorcycle or bicycle, and you always see them engaging with the community. So I, I love seeing that, and I think I'd, that'd be fantastic if that program actually was uh, put in place. Um, as a politician, one of the things that you notice is people run for office and they're out and about and they're hitting the streets and they're talking about their agendas and they're trying to secure votes and they're trying to make you know networks and with the community what happens after you get elected are you still going to remain accessible are you still going to be involved with the community in terms of programs that you have in place where you're actually a visible character as opposed to just someone who got elected and went behind the door yeah thanks for asking that because there are some people that go behind the door um yes so i've been in the community you know I'm in the community now, and I intend to be in the community when elected. You know, and I sa I've said this to so many people because I've been to a lot of organizations that host events, and one recurring theme is I hear them say this a lot. They say, "You all only come around during election season," and I've, I've I'm committed to doing the same thing that I've done. It, it hasn't changed. You know, I've been in the community for multiple years doing the community work. That's not going to change. Lisa, you had a question on some items here. Um, you were talking a little bit about this already, but um, I love your, your stance on community and policing. And if you can just explain a little bit more of that to us. Yeah. So the way, the way it would start is it, it starts with initially rebranding what the CMPD does here. You know, so rather than policing, it's serving people. And by serving people, we got to have the right officers. So I... I currently believe that there are some good officers, and I currently also believe that there are some officers that shouldn't be on the streets right now, and we need to figure out who they are. So I'll give you an example. There is a training called the Crisis Intervention Team, and what they do is they handle calls where folks have uh, either exhibited you know, mental health issues and they believe that they're, they're, you know, they have mental health issues or that they may be under the influence. In both of Danquarius Franklin's case and, and Keith Lamont Scott, a CIT officer would have been critical. And the approach of a CIT officer is different. You don't come out guns blazing. You talk. You have conversations. You keep your distance to keep your safety as an officer, but you, you come out and you talk. And if you do that, you'll get the results you, that, that, you, that you need. Well, right now we only have 700 of our 1,700 officers trained, and I think we're approaching 800 trained, but that's still, that's, that's all, just half. Only half of them are trained on how to handle these calls. And it's optional. We need to make that mandatory. Absolutely. And every officer needs to be trained on how to, how to actually handle one of those situations. So that's one way. And the other way is, you know, we truly need to rethink and, and as a city, define what, because, you know, the, the, the Constitution will say that you can use reasonable use of force. 
But I think as a city, we need to define what reasonable use of force means. Man, and there's we, a lot of gray area of that, isn't there? There is, there is. And we need to pass a resolution as a city that says this is what that means to us and this is proper use of force and improper use of force and then hold these officers that we hopefully will pay more, hold them accountable to following that. And if they don't, they can face termination and they can also face, uh, you know, they can face criminal charges. So are, is the uh, CMPD aware of your policies around this? Have you had conversations with leadership down there? Are they in support of what you're proposing? Is there some pushback around any of this? A and why wouldn't they make that kind of a mandatory policy across the board for police officers? You're a civil servant mm -hmm. serving a massive city, a massively growing city. Crime is on the uptick. Why wouldn't that be first and foremost on the agenda? Yeah, and, and I agree with you. And I would like to think, and this is me assuming, but I would like to think that most officers, the good officers, would say, you're going to pay me more, but you're going to heighten the level of accountability. I'll take it. Mm -hmm. But then some of the ones that aren't in it for the right reasons, that are not there to serve, they, they want to just police, mm -hmm. but they don't want to serve, they would probably say, you know what? This isn't for me. I got to go. And I think that's good attrition. Absolutely. So the first question, is the police department in support of some of the policies you have in place? Or have you had conversations with leadership around this? Have you received no, any, have any feedback on that? Nope. Interesting. No. Hey, Lisa, you had another question. I'm sorry. I just took it in a different direction again. Sorry. No, that's totally fine. I do love how you, with, with whatever um, you're talking about, you bring up accountability. And you've got that for every issue. That's fantastic. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about immigration, too? Um, I think so many of us either have immigrated here or, um, you know, I, I came from Canada or their parents have immigrated here. Um, and just talk to us a little bit about that. All right. You're about to fire me up, Lisa. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. You know, here in Charlotte, and I'll start with this particular statistic around immigration, it, you know, we are the immigrant community is about 17 percent of our city. That's almost one out of five. That's impactful. You know, another statistic that most people don't know is undocumented immigrants. And we'll, we'll, we'll focus on them for a minute because I know that's a hot topic these days. Thirty five point two percent of our city's construction workers are undocumented immigrants. Deport them all. And I'm not sure who is who's building these pretty little buildings in Uptown. You know, so for me as a son of immigrant parents, immigration is near and dear to my heart. And I think about this constantly, is what if my parents or my mom would have come here now? They, she would have probably been turned away at the border. You see, when she came, she was brought here. She came at the age of 12 with her mother escaping oppression in Cuba. They were granted political asylum and ultimately were granted a path to citizenship. That doesn't happen much here. And what we're doing is we're, we're reducing the amount of immigrants that are allowed into our country. Therefore, that creates desperation among the immigrants. And it increases the amount of immigrants that are so desperate that they don't mind crossing the border and coming into the country without the proper documentation. We're creating our own problem. Now, that's at a federal level, right? So some people would argue, well, that's not within the purview of the city. There's nothing we could do. And I beg to differ. So we had the ICE raids that happened here back in February and March. And a group of Latin American advocates and I went into the city council and, and spoke about this. Before then, some on the council were saying, there's nothing we could do. This is a federal issue. Well, an ad hoc committee was created by, by Mayor Vi Lyles, which I was appointed to, to be a part of. And now, 45 days after, there's a, there's a list of initiatives that we hope 
to, to implement here as a city. And if elected, I would make sure that we're pushing those issues because we have to. But there's a lot the city can do. The first thing is we can include uh, immigration reform on our city's federal legislative agenda. We currently don't have that. What that means is that we would advocate with our congressmen and women in Washington officially on a document saying we want updates on what you're doing to push immigration reform between both sides, comprehensive immigration reform. Um, number two, we can help all the immigrants that are coming here. We have engineers and architects that are mowing lawns and driving Ubers, and they're only a couple of thousand dollars and a couple of years away from getting their education abroad accredited here. And who wins? We all win. They win because they're making more money. We win because we have more attorneys, more engineers, more architects, right? And then you've got the folks that don't come here with education, and that's fine, but they are willing to work 70 to 80 hours a week. And there's a great organization called the Latin American Coalition, and they have a workers camp where what they do is they make sure that folks are being paid because a lot of immigrants are, are being paid daily, and they get stiffed a lot. People are not paying them. So the city needs to do its part to make sure that organizations like the Latin American Coalition have that funding and, and that we're also doing our part to tie them into English classes. Let's teach them how to speak English, right? You know, they come here so willing and able, but they need the resources. And the Office of Equity, Mobility, and Immigrant Integration has to take the lead on that. That's fantastic. I like that you have an agenda around it. I'd like to go back to the more local issues. Um, there are two of them specifically. You talked about pay scale for police officers. Um, my uh, former wife was a school teacher, and, and she was teaching for a bit here in Charlotte when we first moved here. And I think the average salary for a Charlotte teacher is $29,000 a year. It's very low. It's lower than police officers. So people have been talking about this issue for years. And, she, and I, I referenced her because she got out of teaching specifically because she just couldn't. The bubble was just too low. She couldn't make enough money doing what she wanted to do. People have been talking about teacher salaries for years, mm -hmm. but nothing ever seems to happen. And so all these Montessori schools and all these charter schools and all these private schools are popping up all over the Charlotte. Every time I drive around somewhere into, into a newer community in Charlotte, I see a new school opening up. And when you talk to parents, because I do, uh, why they're sending their kids to private schools or why they're sending these kids to alternative schools, it's because they're not getting the education that they want, the schools are overcrowded. You've heard all of this. Yep. It's just minu it's minutia of data that you've heard over and over. But why is nothing ever done about that? I'm just curious about it. Why, why does people, people have been talking about salaries and education for years. Why is nothing ever done, in your opinion? Yeah, and that's, you know, well, some would argue, again, that it's not within the purview of the city, it's more the county, the state, federal, so on and so forth, right? I, I, I hear that, but I also don't believe that, I believe actually that, that true leadership is getting involved in things that typically may not fall within your purview, right? But why? Well, I think it's because, first of all, there needs to be a conscious effort between by, by the right people, the state and federally, to come together and finally solve this issue. I'm of the belief that teachers should make between 50 to 70 grand plus. You know, <laughs> they are really, they're, what they're doing is they're grooming the future of our society. I can't think of a more important role than that. So why is nothing ever done about it? Yeah, I, I Why think, does nothing ever change? I think it's because we have, again, the wrong people in office. That, so that's, that's a national issue, by the way. That's agreed. not just, a, I mean, I, I, I'm, not be, I'm not the best on data and numbers, but I know that educationally on the public school sector across the planet, 
um, America is rank is is falling every year. They fall lower and lower in standardized scores and all that stuff. And I don't put a whole lot of credibility on the standardized test scores. I'd rather see real education going on, and we're getting away from that. Yeah. And as we're getting away from that, we're paying our teachers less to get away from that, and they're just basically become robots and automatons, with yeah. exceptions, obviously. So you talked about educating the police department. You talked about paying them more money, and you talked about educating massive amounts of people because it starts with education, right? right? So why would we not put the crux of our forces and the crux of our economic policy into that space right now? And why is that not happening? Yeah, and, and again, I, I, I believe it's not happening because a lot of talk. People like to talk a lot, even at a state level and at a federal level. So I think it's time for some of those folks to put their money where their mouth is and actually move and do it. Now, specifically with the city, I'll say this. you know, The way our city operates is you have our board of county commissioners, you have the school board, and then you have the city council. The, the, the county would, would handle, you know, uh, C, it's mostly CMS, right? Um, but CMS is its own entity, right? It's, it has its own school board. Um, well, recently the county passed their new budget, and part of that involved them actually dishing out some of their money to help increase teacher salary. I believe the city needs to do its part as well to chip in. You know, and some would argue, well, that's not within the city's purview. Well, I, I beg to differ because tell me who is educating the youth of our 850,000 Charlatans. It's, it's, it's those teachers, so we need to chip in. And one thing that we don't have here, unfortunately, which I'd like to see more back on the, on the topic of collaborative and participatory leadership is, at the moment, our Board of County Commissioners, our school board, and our city council, they operate independently. And they'll probably continue to do so because that's just the way we're set up. But there needs to be more collaboration between three those three entities. And I know people within each of those boards and councils, right, that, that would want to see that happen. But we have to be intentional about how we work together. And one thing that I'll firmly support is the city doing its part to carve out some part of their budget to chip in, just like the Board of County Commissioners did. That's fantastic. I love that. So another hotbed, and I'm sorry to put you on the on the spot. I should have given you advanced purview. That's all right, man. I like it like I this. I like it being yeah. candid yeah. this way. So uh, I did not realize this. This is a new stat for me, and I I knew that it's it's. I've always known it's been a hotbed here in Charlotte, but I was told, and I researched this and validated it, that Charlotte is no, the number one city in all of North Carolina, and falls within the top ten nationally on any given day on sex trafficking. You're a father of four kids. I have two young girls. Lisa has a couple of kids, four kids of her own. Why Charlotte, first of all, and what's going on in that front to, to police around that? Yeah, from my understanding, the reason why Charlotte is Charlotte kind of becomes a hub for it because we're in the middle ground between cities like Miami and New York. So we're almost the, the stopping point, right? Um, and, you know, it goes back to what I was saying. When you are understaffed as a police force, and you don't have people on the streets getting to know people. They don't have the, you know, you've heard the term, keep your ear to the streets, right? Mm -hmm. The police department currently doesn't have its ear to the streets because they don't know people in the community as well as they should. And if we, if we can properly staff by, again, increasing pay, heightening accountability, and making sure we have the right amount of officers, they'll start seeing things that they're not seeing today. Right now, it's their blind spot. Do, do police officers, the leadership of police officers, are they allowed uh, as a kind of like a, 
uh, an ad hoc position on city council? Do they attend the meetings? Are they part of the leadership of that? I don't even know how that works. They do attend. Um, the way it works right now But do they have a role? They're not just there by proxy. Yeah, exactly. The chief of police reports to the city manager, uh-huh. who is the city manager is, is hired by the city council. Uh-huh. Right. So it's almost like Queen City Unity, right? I'm the executive director. Um, that would be the equivalent of the city manager. Mm-hmm. And then the board at Queen City Unity would be the equivalent of the council. They make decisions based on, so the council would would vote, and when they vote on things, then now the city manager takes that and says, all right, this is what we're going to implement, and vice versa. The uh, city manager would make recommendations to the council. So in essence, yes, the, the absolutely, and they are there. I've seen a lot of the offices. I know Chief Kurt Putney has attended many council meetings. Um, so well, that, uh, I guess where I was going with it, as opposed to just attending, are they actually playing an active role in terms of the leadership of it, in terms of the direction? They're not just there by proxy is where I was going with Yeah, it. I see what you mean. That's a good question. I, you know, I, they're, again, at, at the mercy of the city manager because uh-huh. the, the chief of police reports to the city manager. Um, they have shown up and, and expressed their, their thoughts, uh, specifically around pay. I've, I've seen them there, and they had a pretty big, uh, you know, pretty, pretty good turnout. I'd say about a year ago, I think it was, or earlier this year, to, to increase their pay, which was increased slightly, uh, but not to the levels where you're going to decrease retention and increase accountability. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity there. So back to the trafficking question, is is there a special task force? Or I'm, I'm Obviously, they're doing something about it. This can't be a new topic for them. But is there an active force that's out trying to police this, combat this? Is there stuff that's actively going on around it? I don't even know how you would... I'm not even sure how you would police that because yeah. I, I ju- it's not even data that I was aware of. Well, and I don't think so. I don't think it's there's a special task force for it. From my understanding, I could be terribly wrong, but I haven't heard of it. And if I haven't heard of it, it probably doesn't exist. Um, you know, I, I like to I like to keep my ear to the streets as much as I can. Um, but no, and I think it just how do you police it? I had a conversation with a woman. She does she does nails, and she does nails for women that are being traffic sexually now some of them by choice by the way so it's a little bit different there sure um, i understand uh, but there's always a tie-in right if the officers knew these people and if they knew who this woman was then they would they would be able to get to build those relationships ask questions and the reason why this woman does it by the way is to help them get out mm-hmm. so this is her way of tying into them because she says it's I a be- rabbit hole though isn't it it is it is now and she's helped many of them get out and she's helped them escape and, and, and not that the folks that are trafficking them know. They just think she does their nails. But that's her hidden agenda. Imagine if, there was, if that woman knew a police officer that she can trust. Absolutely. She'd be able to open up that Pandora's box for a good reason. Okay, so uh, call me ignorant and naive. I'm just a, a lowly photographer here in the city. But if that is as hotbed of an issue as it is nationally, internationally, and we lead the nation – wouldn't that make the most sense to get something going right now that there should be some sort of police activity, task force activity, some sort of community involvement to start negating that? Yeah, 100%. But, you know, going back to the, the issue is increase in violent crimes and murders and less officers to handle them. So they're drowning. So it all goes back to resources. all goes back to money. Yep. Obviously, there is a, I heard rumor on the street that there is a proposal to build a new $7 billion football stadium for the Panthers <laughs> with a retractable roof. I posted and talked about this on Instagram. Why would we build a new stadium and why wouldn't we take some of those taxpayers' dollars towards something that could have more of an impact on 
whether it's teachers pay, whether it's police pay, whether it's sex trafficking, why would we spend seven and a half billion dollars on a new stadium? Yeah. Well, I agree. Um, I'm a Panthers fan. I want to start by saying that. But I also believe that the stadium is in good shape and I don't believe the city needs not at the moment, right? If we were if we didn't have the issues that we have today, then I would say, yeah, absolutely, go for it. But no, we, we have to be thoughtful and we you know, and some would argue, well, when you do that, it'll bring new events to our city, you know, more Super Bowls, right? You would have more conventions and so on and so forth, bigger concerts. That's all fine and well, but I don't think we're in a position right now to do that. It's like I, everybody wants their Mercedes Benz, right? But sometimes you're just not in the position to get it. And I think yeah, right but none now. of those things you just touched on add any value to the other crises that, you, that we've talked about. By bringing yeah. more conventions, by bringing more Super Bowls, by bringing more whatever it is, activities, those all touch a specific segment of the population that are not impacted in teachers' pay, police pay, sex trafficking, and any of the other issues, immigration, that, we, that, that the city's facing. So it's an interesting conversation. I'm, I'm very, very concerned to see where it goes, but uh, I'm eager to watch how it unfolds. Yeah, and, to, right. and to answer that, I'm sorry, Diva. So yeah, I, some, would, some would argue, too, that then it brings more tourism and more people here generates more income and, and that there'll be more money. That's the argument. And I see that and I get it. But I think right now, that's, that's not where our focus needs to be. Our focus needs to be on serving our people first. And when we're in a good financial position to make that long-term investment, then we should talk about it. But well, now, we're in a good financial position now for a certain segment of population. So it's a relative yeah. barometer. So Charlotte's a very wealthy city. You right. touched on that. Our economic mobility is one of the lowest in the country. But the population itself, the affluent population, the amount of money that the city makes is significantly, there's a massive gap in there. So the argument, that argument holds no weight with mm -hmm. me because it would just be more of the same thing. More money up here, Correct. less money down here, no money in between policing the real issues. Exactly. So building a stadium, bringing more Super Bowls, bringing more conventions, bringing more tourism doesn't really have any impact whatsoever on all yeah. the issues we just talked about. It's just, it's just a relative barometer that just floats higher and higher. You're, you're right. It, would, it, it could arguably, and some again, some would argue more jobs, too, for some of these low-income folks, but we don't need jobs. We need careers, and we need to put people on a long-term path to home ownership. And that's not it. That won't get us in. Well, I love your analogy. We need fishermen, not fish. Right. So you just can't dump more. You can't just dump more, to borrow your analogy, more fish at the problem. You've <laughs> got to teach people how to actively engage themselves and grow and, and give them responsibilities and jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So it's fantastic. All right. So we're supposed to keep this to an hour. Um, I've enjoyed this conversation. I've had you on for a couple of times. Is there anything specific that you would like to talk about in terms of, you know, some of the big three initiatives? Let's say you have three things right now, your magic wand, you're elected tomorrow. What are three things that you're going to work on right now? And let's say you can get anything done whatsoever. You're no pushback. The, the citizens of Charlotte are in 100% favor. What are three things that get executed tomorrow? Well, I got to say four. Um, so the, 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 the very first one is the expansion of the Office of Equity, Mobility, and Immigrant Integration. Let's properly staff that. You know, we can look at numbers and figure it out, but whether it's 10 or 15 employees that are dedicated to helping folks escape generational poverty and, and working with organizations that already do it. So the expansion of that office and truly developing a long-term strategic plan where we engage the community, not to where 11 council members decide this is what our community needs, but where we truly engage our boards and commissions to develop through community, uh, community engagement what is it that the community needs, wants, and deserves right now? Um, that's first. Uh, secondly, and that also encompasses 
the same uh, initiatives that I was talking about in terms of integrating our immigrant community. But I think that we need to overinvest into that office to be able to accomplish the goals that we need around economic mobility. Second, right, so number one, economic mobility and the yep. expansion of the policies and the people in place to run that. Correct. Um, second one is affordable housing is we need to, again, once again, get creative. So recently there was, uh, I think it was uh, several million, it was 13 to $17 million that were approved by the city council to build more affordable housing units. That's great, and we need that. Part of the issue was we didn't engage the community. And, and the, the council had made a commitment to engage the community through an organization called LISC. LISC did not engage the community. We need to engage the community and ask them what they need. But it would also be investing and rearranging some of our budget to make sure that we are supplementing the housing vouchers and helping people right now, not two or three years from now when, house, you know, when the housing is done. We need both, but we're only doing one right now. So that's affordable housing. The third would be the, the, the increasing, if I had carte blanche to do whatever I want, we increased uh, police pay. And we also put new processes in place to make sure that we're raising the level of accountability, to which end we'll see some, some officers that don't buy into the new culture, a trite, they'll, 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 they'll be out, and that's okay. But if we're paying more, then we could recruit more of the good officers that we need and have less of the bad officers on the street, and then we need to redefine our reasonable use of force policy and, and revamp it and truly define as a city of Charlotte, what do we consider reasonable force, what's the processes in place, and how do we hold officers accountable to make sure that they're protecting the streets but also not taking the lives of people that shouldn't be, have their lives lost. So those, those are the, the three, and then the fourth one is the immigrant community, which I'm very passionate about. The first thing I do on day one, if I had carte blanche to do whatever I want, is we add immigration reform to our federal legislative agenda and start advocating it at, at a federal level. Fantastic. So people can find you online. What's your website? Uh, so it's Jorge, so J-O-R-G-E, the number four, CLT.com. And then you're on Instagram. Yep. That's, uh, Same handle. Uh, it's, it'd be, yeah, at Jorge, middle initial L, and then last name Millar's, M-I-L-L-A-R-E-S. So how can anyone listening, how can anybody who supports your cause, supports your policies get involved? Yeah, so, well, first and foremost, I'm not afraid to shoot it out. My phone number is 704-604-5563. Give me a call. I'm very accessible. I only sleep from about 1 a.m. to about 6 a.m., so you can call me anytime. That's um, actually true because you responded to me at 1.42 on, on a message <laughs> recently. Like, yeah, it was past my bedtime. Everybody else was still up. Yeah, it was slightly past my bedtime. It was 1.42, but yeah. Uh, so, you know, text me, call me. You can email me, Jorge at Jorge4CLT.com. And if you go to my website, uh, there is there's... You can sign up to volunteer. You can make a financial contribution. And we're about three weeks away, so we need all the help we can get. Um, and I, I firmly believe that if we want change in Charlotte, we need to change our city council. And, and that's what I'm hoping to do, and I hope to earn the support of everybody. And, and one thing we didn't talk about, or we did mention briefly, is representation matters. And if and when elected, I would be the first Latino in the history of Charlotte to serve on that council. And we're 16% of the population. We deserve representation as well. You, 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 that's a number you don't actually hear a lot about. 16% mm -hmm. is a large number. Um, one thing I'd also like to add, and just because this is a, a, a personal thing near and dear to my heart, is MLS soccer program. Mm -hmm. They were vetoed two years ago by the city council that you are going to be soon be part of. Is there anything on the horizon to bring a soccer, a professional soccer organization back to Charlotte? I've heard some of that, but I've also heard Major League Baseball also, another one that, that's coming up a lot. Um, I think they're both worth looking at, you know, and, and there's 
to me, when I think of major cities, you know, you have baseball team, football team, soccer team, uh, you know, those are, those are the main ones, right? You know, and, and, and uh, basketball, right? Right now, we lack a major league baseball team and we lack an MLS team. So I think it's something we got to look at and just make sure that financially it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And as long as a lot of the cost does not fall on the city, mm-hmm. I think that's when I'm on board with it. Fantastic. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thanks yeah, for coming Yeah, same here, Devo. I appreciate it. Lise, anything, closing thoughts, questions before we no, run out? No, I just, just totally loved your insight and your zest and just your, your representation of the full community. It was wonderful to hear. Yeah, thank you so much, Lisa. I appreciate it. All right, man. Have a great day. Yeah, you too, man. Thanks, Lise.